Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. What are you doing? What? I mean, I guess that's one way to cross the bridge. <laughs> if you're trying to be John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever, you're on the wrong bridge. We have to go to the Verrazano Narrows. No, I'm just getting in the mood for the show tonight. It's one of my favorites. How can you not get excited and just want to... Ah, dance! (laughs) Okay, tiny dancer. Whatever makes you happy. Look, I know I'd never be cast in the show, but for this one moment, I'm going to imagine I'm in the opening number, getting stared down by the legendary director, Zack. Step, kick, kick, leap, kick, touch. Oh, I am having flashbacks to high school now. Wow, me too. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, let's do the ballet section the rest of the way so we can make it back to our place and get out of these outfits and into something a little more appropriate for the show. <laughs> okay, now I'm really excited for this. Oh God, we need this show. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the historical and landmark show, A Chorus Line. So hurry and take your seats, it looks like the show is starting! Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Well, we hope you brought your tights, your leg warmers, and you're all stretched out for today's episode. For today, we'll be tapping, chassing, leaping, and kicking our way through over 40 years of Broadway history as we discuss the legendary show, A Chorus Line. This is a show that any theater buff surely is familiar with some aspect of, Truly, any theater-goer is familiar with the show, as countless other Broadway shows have either drawn inspiration from or even mimicked, copied elements of the show. But we are getting ahead of ourselves. Before we can talk about the finished product, we have to first go to the rehearsal room. I guess in this case to the workshop room and discuss where everything begins. This show was developed from several taped workshops with Broadway dancers, including eight who eventually appeared in the original cast. The sessions were originally hosted by dancers Michonne Peacock and Tony Stevens. They hoped that the workshops would help them form a professional dance company. Michael Bennett was invited to join the group as an observer, but he quickly took control of the proceedings. During workshops for the show, random characters were chosen at the end for the cast. But several costumers objected to this ending, and the ending was cut. 
because how can a wardrobe crew plan for changes for the finale when they don't know who's going to be changing? As the show was preparing for a fully realized production at the public theater, the design team was assembled. Scenic design by Robin Wagner, costume design by Theoni V. Aldridge, lighting design by Theron Musser, sound design by Abe Jacob. Writing the book would be James Kirkwood and Nicholas Danta. The memorable music would be by the great Marvin Hamlish and lyrics by Edward Kilbin. The conception, direction, and choreography would be by Michael Bennett. Bob Avon also helped choreograph the original production. A chorus line opened off-Broadway at the Public Theater on April 15, 1975. At that time, the show did not have enough money to finance the production, so it borrowed $1.6 million. Because of the excitement created by word of mouth and demand for tickets to the show, the show sold out instantly for its entire run, so producer Joseph Papp moved the production to Broadway. The success of the show would be a major source of income for the public theater that would allow it to continue to produce new works. With all the excitement and buzz, the show arrived in a big way on Broadway at one of the crown jewel theaters of the Great White Way, the Schubert Theater. The show opened there on October 19, 1975. It would stay there for almost 15 years and 6,137 performances, finally closing on April 28, 1990. When the show closed, it was the longest-running show in Broadway history until Cats in 1997. As of today, it is the seventh in the list of the longest-running shows on Broadway. In 1976, the show would receive an astounding 12 Tony nominations and would dance away with nine, including Best Musical, Best Score for Marvin Hamlish and Edward Kleban, Best Lighting Design for Theron Musser, Best Book of a Musical for James Kirkwood and Nicholas Dante, Best Choreography for Michael Bennett and Bob Avian, Best Direction of a Musical, Michael Bennett, Best Actress in a Musical in a Leading Role, Donna McKinney, Best Featured Actor in a Musical, Sammy Williams, and Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Kelly Bishop. In 1984, a chorus line received a special Tony Award in honor of becoming Broadway's longest-running musical. Producer Joseph Papp was presented with uh, the special Gold Tony Award. But that wasn't the end of the recognition for this amazing production. The show also won the 1976 Pulitzer Prize for Drama one of the few musicals in the award's history to this day to win the award. The musical was revived on Broadway at the Schoenfeld Theater on October 6, 2006, running for 759 performances and closing on August 17, 2008. The production was directed by Bob Avian, with the, chore- the choreography reconstructed by Bayork Lee, who had played Connie Wong in the original Broadway production. The production was the subject of the documentary film Every Little Step. Okay, are we feeling warmed up? Ready for the next round? Let's get to it. Let's dive into the heart of the show.
The show opens in the middle of an audition for an upcoming Broadway production. The formidable director Zach and his assistant choreographer Larry put the 24 dancers through their paces. Every dancer is desperate for work. After rounds of cuts, 17 dancers remain. Zach tells them he is looking for a strong eight-member dancing chorus of four boys and four girls. Wanting to learn more about them, he asks the dancers to introduce themselves. Reluctantly, the dancers reveal their past. The stories generally progress chronologically from early life experiences through adulthood to the end of a career. The first candidate, Mike Costa, explains that he is the youngest of 12 children. He recalls his first experience with dance, watching his sister Rosalie's dance class when he was a preschooler. Mike took her place one day when she refused to go to dance class, and he stayed. Bobby Mills tries to hide his unhappy childhood by making jokes. As he speaks, the other dancers have misgivings about this strange audition process and debate what they, sh- what they should reveal to Zach. But since they all need a job, the session continues. Zach is angered when he feels that the streetwise Sheila Bryant is not taking the audition seriously. Opening up, she reveals that her mother married at a young age and her father neither cared about nor loved them. When she was six, she realized, as had fellow auditionees B.B. Benzenheimer and Maggie Winslow, that ballet provided relief from their unhappy family life. Scatterbrained and tone-deaf Christine Ulrich DeLuca laments her inability to sing while her husband Al interrupts her by finishing her phrases in tune. Mark Anthony, the youngest of the dancers, relates his first experiences with pictures of the female anatomy and his first wet dream, while the other dancers share their own memories of adolescence. The four foot ten Connie Wong laments the problems of being short, and Diana Morales recollects her horrible high school acting class. Don Kerr remembers his first job at a nightclub, and Judy Turner reflects on her problematic childhood while some of the auditioners talk about their opinions of their parents. Greg Gardner speaks about his discovery of his homosexuality. And Richie Walters recounts how he nearly became a kindergartner teacher. Finally, the newly buxom Val Clark explains that talent alone does not count for everything with casting directors. And silicone and plastic surgery can really help improve one's image and career prospects. The dancers go downstairs to learn a song for the audition's next section. But Cassie Ferguson, a veteran dancer with notable success as a soloist, stays on stage to talk to Zach. They have history together. Zach had previously cast her in a featured part, and they had lived together for several years. Zach tells Cassie that she is too good for the course and shouldn't be at this audition. However, she explains her current inability to find solo work and is willing to come home to the course, where she can at least express her passion for dance. Zach sends her downstairs to learn the dance combination. Zach calls Paul San Marco, who has been reluctant to share his past, on stage for a private talk. He emotionally relives his childhood and high school experience, his early career in a drag act, coming to terms with his manhood and his homosexuality, 
and his parents' ultimate reaction to finding out about his lifestyle. Paul breaks down and is comforted by Zach. Cassie and Zach's complex relationship resurfaces during a run-through of the number created to showcase an unnamed star. Zach confronts Cassie, feeling that she is dancing down, and they rehash what went wrong in their relationship and her career. Zach points to the middle, excuse me, Zach points to the machine-like dancing of the rest of the cast, the other dancers who have all blended together and who will probably never be recognized individually and mockingly asked if this is what she wants. Cassie defiantly defends the dancers. I'd be proud to be one of them. They're wonderful. They're all special. I'd be happy to be dancing in a line like that. Yes, I would. During a tap sequence, Paul falls and injures his knee that recently underwent surgery. After Paul is carried off to the hospital, all the auditioners stand in disbelief, realizing that their careers can also end in an instant. Zach asks the remaining dancers what they will do when they can no longer dance. Led by Diana, they reply that whatever happens, they will be free of regret. The final eight dancers are selected. Mike, Cassie, Bobby, Judy, Richie, Val, Mark, and Diana. The song One begins with an an individual bow for each of the 19 characters. Their hodgepodge rehearsal clothes replaced by identical spangled gold costumes. As each dancer joins the group, it is suddenly difficult to distinguish one from the other. Ironically, each character who has an individual, who as an indivi- was an individual to the audience, seems now to be an anonymous member of a never-ending ensemble. All right, and that's the chorus line. I love this show <laughs> so much. You know, uh. I'm not even a dancer, and I connect to it in so many ways that I didn't think were possible. <sighs> that's so good. Like, who? Look, you all just heard the synopsis, and it seems like very simple and kind of forward. But like, as we're like reading the synopsis, right? I'm literally hearing the songs and then it's taking everything in me mm-hmm. not to sing. Like when we started talking about how they're talking about their adolescence, all I can hear is, hello 12, hello 13, hello love. Well, when we were talking about the one guy wanting to be the kindergarten teacher, I was like, give me the ball, give, give me the ball. ball. Give and me I was the like, ball. yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, oh, this was a story that was long overdue to be told, you know? Um, I mean, how many times do the ensemble members just fade into the background and yeah, no one ever... they're set dressing almost, you know what I mean? Yeah. And now we actually get to see this process and what oh, they go through. Oh, yeah. Well, because this was before, like, the ensemble show was, you know... Right. Big. Right. There was always, like, a leading character or whatever. Yeah. And, and instead, everybody was the lead. Yeah, I, I know yeah, where you're going with like, that. Yeah, like, I mean, I know that they nominated leads and... Featured actors, but really everyone. But is it's kind of like with "Come From Away" when Jen Colella got the the Tony nomination, and you know a well deserved Tony nomination. But it's like, yeah, but they're all like 
the same size part, you know? Mm-hmm. It's the plot, in regards to the plot, it's raw and it's real. It's a, there's a human uh, behind, it's, it's a truly see. human and behind the curtain story, you know what I mean? Like, oh, this yeah. isn't just a fun, like, uh, what's the, is it Noises Off I'm thinking of? Where it's the oh, behind. yeah, where it's, like, backstage. Yeah, and... this isn't, this is not one of those, like, farcical behind this curtain no, kind of stories. No, this is, like, there are people who have lives beyond what you see on stage. When, 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 when my family, you know, when I, I told them I was going to go to the theater, immediately they were like, you're going to be a starving actor, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, well, that's one point of view. But I think they all had in their head this show. And I was like, yes, it's going to be hard, but it's the rewards are worth that. And I think it really comes through in this show. Mm-hmm. Well, because, I mean, really, the, the, the theme to the show is what I did for love. And it's not what I did for love as in, like, who I loved. It's what I did f- for the things I love. I'm going to be referencing this a lot. Broadway, the American musical. But there's a great quote when they're talking about this show from Tommy Toon. And he's talking about dancers in particular. And he says, when it comes to dancing, particularly in the theater, if you wake up and that's not something you want to do every day when you wake up, then it's not for you. And maybe you should just go sell hamburgers because it's not for sissies, contrary to popular demand. And I think that applies to anything in the theater. If you wake up and you can think of nothing else to do, but whatever that is in the theater, then that's what you're meant to do. No matter how hard it is, that's what you're meant to do. You know? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a little bug that sits in your ear and just is constantly like, you need to, the stage is there and you need to be there. I went through like two or three different programs in college trying to, you know, do the, put the food on the table, get a real job. And at the end of the day, the universe threw me right back into the theater. And I was like, I could have saved myself a lot of time and money if I had just stuck with what was really in me the whole time. I mean. Well, and I think, yeah, I, the show is the story of the humans, so there's not anything that really needs to be added. No. The set was bare, simple, flawless, I mean, beautiful. In fact, in the revival, I'm not really sure like if they built a set or if it was the actual, like, the back of the theater. I think, I really do think it was the just back an, of the Schoenfeld Theater. Just an empty stage? Yeah, like, you know, they, they had the the set and of course they had like the mirrors that flew in and and the golden sunburst that they're known for but like the actual back wall was the real back wall of the theater and i I, it's just iconic like what other show do you think of i can think of one other show in my mind right now that that's a thing pippin uh i that too but actually i think the will rogers follies oh yeah when the depression hits yeah yeah you know the, the mirrors that they use for the opening number. And then, of course, you know, they bring it back in when they're mocking the the machine that is the chorus line mm-hmm. during the first number of one. And then, like I had mentioned before, the iconic gold sunburst for the finale. I mean, they're just simple set pieces. But, but that's all it needs. Right, because the focus is on the, the dancer. The dancer. There's one other iconic set piece that you can't do a chorus line without. It's not necessarily a set piece. It's oh, yes. The line. Yeah. That white line right across the state. Like you, you, if you see a production of a chorus line without that line, now forget about it. They're doing it wrong. You have to have that line. 
Yeah, because and, we're all on the line. That's right. We'll talk about that more later on. But, like, it's not there for, uh, as far as I know, not so that they can, like, oh, we need to line up on the side. No, it's actually, there's, like, an actual purpose, a uh, philosophy, if you will, behind with the show. Um, so I, it's just these simple little elements that tie it together. Um, the lights were great. It's simple and it's, what I love of it, I will say it's kind of harsh. It's not the, I mean, it's, it's focused cause it is a show, but at the same time it's got it's that not, harsh kind of like spread wide bright yeah, cause it's it, an audition. Yeah. Cause it's like, it's like, oh, we're lighting the stage to light the stage, not lighting the stage to light the people. Uh, yeah, I, you know, we're not having like these rock concert lighting effect kind of things. We have some lighting effects, obviously, for different moments. But on the whole, it's just, it's this harsh audition lighting, which is really fantastic. You know, and I, and I think it's something the audience takes for granted where I'm like, no, that's, that's kind of the lighting you get when you walk into audition. If you're fortunate enough to audition in a stage, you know, otherwise you're under harsh fluorescent lighting in some studio on 42nd Street. Um, I do want to mention one thing about the sound. I love, one of the effects I love about the show is the actors sometimes have to throw their voice and it's throwing their voice without, it's a sound, it's an effect on the sound. So they're throwing their voice without throwing their voice. Um, particularly in the montage number, which involves hello 12, hello 13 or nothing or sing, you know, there's a huge block of numbers that just kind of run together. And Different actors have to throw their voice. I'll show you mine. You show me yours. You know, and that's great sound design to be able to just mess around with it so that we get the idea. There's almost like that there's movement, but mm-hmm. there's not necessarily, you know. Mm-hmm. The costumes, I mean, it's a chorus line. 1970s workout clothing. Hello, leg warmers. <laughs> hello, you know. 13, hello, love. No. Hello, spandex. <laughs> hello, you know. This is that high-waisted, like, not high-waisted, but, like, high-cut. Thigh. Uh-huh. Yep. The, the sweatband. You know, I mean, not 80s colors, but you're you're getting those cuts, the shapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's an iconic look for for the audition part you know for the front the bulk of the show and then let's be real that end of that show the kick line mm-hmm. when they're in the all gold yeah well and what i find fascinating um i don't know who did it first where did it come from but like the outfit that they wear in um you know the finale Reminds me of Columbia from uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'd be interested. I th- I want to say it which was came first. A chorus line. That's came what first. I thought because then she goes off and tap dances, and so I'm like, like everyone who I knew growing up when they did that costume, I was like, are they referencing a chorus line? Are, are they, they referencing, referencing the Rocky, Rocky Horror? Yeah. And so. Uh, but yeah, they're the costumes. They're it's simple. It's kind of like two looks, but they're iconic. The music, Hamish's music, again, it's iconic. Come on. Who doesn't know what song's coming when you hear the da 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 mm-hmm. You know, musical theater-wise. Like, if you're not in the musical theater fan, you might be like, oh, there's, you're going to hear some ragtime. But you're a musical theater buff. You hear that. You're about to hear step, kick, kick, leap, kick, turn. 
again, you know, the one, I mean, obviously everyone knows one singular sensation, but the other one I think that everybody really knows and they don't realize it is kiss today, goodbye. Oh, yeah. What, what I, I did, did for, for love. love. It's oh, it's iconic. It's timeless. It's just when you hear a song from a chorus line, you know it's a chorus line. Mm-hmm. How do we not talk about the choreography in a chorus line? <laughs> I mean, well, that's the hard one. How do we talk about choreography? Look, it raised the bar it on was choreography. The bar, get it? Oh, stop it. That's terrible. <laughs> no, it, it raised the bar on choreography in the theater. I really think so. I, I truly think, I mean... It's a show about dancing, so you can't just have the dancing kind of accentuate things. It's the whole show about dancing. So whatever you were using to kind of be your blockbuster move previously in a show, now it's you got to one-up it because we can't just watch someone pirouette and do a double and call that a day. No, we need more than that. And if you think about the opening number for a chorus line, think about some of the great opening numbers in Broadway shows. The first one that comes to mind is 42nd Street. That great tap number, the curtains raised just a little, and you just see the feet coming here, those dancing feet. Anyway, uh, you know, um, that's great, but we're watching seven, eight minutes of people full-on dancing. And part of it, full-on dancing ballet, you've got to keep it changed up and fresh Uh to some extent. So I thought, yeah, it's great. And this... With this choreography, this became like the mountaintop for Broadway dancers, this show. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like there's shows that for, like, actors, you know, this is, you know, King Lear for the serious actor, you know, or something like that. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. Hamilton's, like, for musical theater actors. And This was the show for dancers. Everybody wants to be in this show who's a dancer. Um, and when you think of iconic choreography in Broadway history, like Jerome Robbins with his West Side Story, Fosse with Chicago, mm-hmm. Annie Blankenbuehler, Hamilton, Gower Champion, 42nd Street, they're all great. But when you say Broadway dance, I truly think you're thinking of people will think immediately of Bennett and a chorus line. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like immediately. That's the first like, yeah, the kick line and the and the audition stuff. Right. And it's like, yeah, OK, absolutely. We'll take that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, you know, I think that the most famous kick line is the Radio City Rockettes. They're the, they've been around the longest, certainly. But I would rival that, like, I don't know, if you're thinking about a mixed company or a mixed uh, bag of males and females doing, uh, you know, it's a chorus line. Well, I would say that the Rockettes are New York's kick line, but chorus line is broadway's kick line you know what i mean like yeah like they all dance but it's different capacity dancing yeah no i agree and lastly the direction i mean well uh, the thing about the direction is it's hard to tell what's direction and what's choreography what's choreography and what's direction that's a really interesting point of view i didn't even think about that yeah because if you're doing a show about dancing that means that the direction is in the movement and the movement is the dancing that's a really good point i think you just broke the universe with that right well because there's no way you could split up the role of director and choreographer it's the same brain yeah it has to be the same brain because that's what this show is like you couldn't have a director who wasn't the choreographer that's just it i can't understand how that would work the the through line wouldn't 
it wouldn't be the same because the uh, I mean where choreography usually does help storytelling does help further the story it's it is like one of the if not the biggest element of the show it's the show is yeah. dancing I thought the direction was a perfect balance of raw ambition and storytelling and physical storytelling like they're up there burying their souls and you feel that mm-hmm but then there's also that physical, like you said, there's that storytelling through dance. Right. Well, there's that storytelling through dance as well as the stillness, like of just standing there. How do you stand at an audition? How do you, when we have the other actors in the corner kind of commenting on like, ah, this is kind of a weird audition. Well, it's funny you know? that you say the, the stillness because I'll say the most exposed moment, the most vulnerable moments, there's three of them I can think of. And it's the end of the opening number when they're all in a line with their headshots. Mm-hmm. It's the um, first cut when they're all up there. Mm-hmm. And it's the very end of the show when they make the final cut and they're all in a line. Mm-hmm. I think when they're standing there still all in a line, that's the most vulnerable that they are. When they're able to talk, it's one of those, you know, when you're in a moment of like, sadness or fear so I think if I keep talking it's not true if I just keep talking things won't happen the minute you have to be still and silent then you're vulnerable and and the reality kind of sets in well and especially for dancers because a a object in motion wants to stay in motion and especially for a dancer like having to stand still yes um you know and by the way we should totally talk about the iconic moment at the end of the opening number where they all have their headshots and they're on the line. That is just a gorgeous piece of direction that's so iconic that literally, like, sums up Broadway in a nutshell. I mean, this is the first time we really had that raw exposed right there in a line. Here's everyone. Boom. That's the button. We don't see that again until we see it in Rent. And we see it in a completely different way. Yeah. Well, the other thing I think is significant about that is I love the line, um, who am I anyway? Am I my resume? Mm -hmm. If any of you out there are aspiring young actors and you've ever been in an audition, you know, and if you're not, here's an inside thing. We get like 30 seconds, maybe a minute in front of a, a table of people. And when you get into a professional setting, you are lucky if that table of people gives you all of their undivided attention. Right. I mean, they might be ordering lunch. They might be looking at something else. You really, you they pass on your resume and you hope you make an impression, but they're probably going to look at your stuff later and go, oh yeah, I remember him, maybe. Your headshot and your resume speak louder for you than your actual audition does. But nine times the, out of ten. Here's the thing. It's not just actors that that's for. And I think that that concept of am I my resume is something that, a lot of people can relate to because even as a hairdresser or you know as a as a as a hair artist like I feel like I'm judged by my resume and not by my merit or my skill I could be actively portraying something beautiful um the one thing that I'm lucky that makes me different than um actors is I have a visible portfolio mm-hmm. I'm lucky if anyone looks at it but right. you know I, I think one thing to note is that this is a true masterwork of showing the struggles that everyone on the stage goes through. You know, Bennett's directing shows that. And as Graciela Danielle, who's another director choreographer, as she put, you had an entire two hours talking about these individual people and all this um, 
that they all this stuff that they went through to get a job to be on Broadway and what it is it's to what it means to be on Broadway is to be in an assembly line and that's the genius of Michael Bennett he gave the audience what they wanted what he meant was something else and i love that quote because yeah you think about it eight shows a week same thing every week but it has to be, you know every show has to be fresh and new but basically it's an assembly line Mm-hmm. The audition process is essentially the same most of the time. And that was, I feel like, Michael Bennett's commentary. Mm-hmm. And also a little bit shaking it up where he's like, all right, you're all great dancers, but I want to get to know you personally. And, I, and that's a game changer because one of the things that they're looking for in an audition is who can I live with, first of all, eight weeks in a room of 12-hour rehearsals, and then afterwards – Eight times a week plus some rehearsals. Well, and especially in some of those Broadway theaters where you have... Such small dressing rooms. Yeah. It's like, who can I be around and not want to kill them? You might be a great singer, dancer, whatever, but if you have the personality of COVID... I was going to say a potato, but COVID, I guess. You know, and nobody (laughs) wants to be around you or wants you around, then that's great. We'll take the next person who might not be quite as talented but has a personality that everybody likes you know mm-hmm. um and i think that's such a brilliant thing and so that's what she's saying is the audience goes and they see oh this is the process and what really michael bennett was saying was mm, we're in assembly line it's a factory right well and i want to mention some notable cast members real quick although i'm sure we are definitely forgetting some um but wayne salento played mike uh, Donna McKinney uh, played Cassie. Robert Lapone played Zach, who is Patty Lapone's brother. And then some notable cast members from the revival. I'm going to butcher this name, and I'm sorry. Michael Barrese played Zach. Charlotte D'Ambos played Cassie. Chrissy Whitehead played Christine. Tony Yazbek played Al. And Mario Lopez also played Zach. In 1975, the show's rights were sold to Universal Pictures, and the film was released in 1985 and was deemed a box office bomb. Kelly Bishop, who played the original Sheila, uh, saw director Richard Attenborough on a talk show say that the story is about kids trying to break into the show business. And she has been noted as saying, I almost tossed my TV out the window. I mean, what an idiot. It's a show about veteran dancers looking for one last job before it's too late for them to dance anymore. No wonder the film sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I can see her saying that. Right? In 2015, the original Broadway cast of Hamilton paid tribute to A Chorus Line's 40th anniversary and performed What I Did for Love with the original cast of A Chorus Line joining them on stage. And reports have surfaced that in Ju- uh, reports surfaced in June of 2016 that a second Broadway revival is planned for 2025 in honor of the show's 50th anniversary. So stay tuned. That would be exciting. So let's now talk about the show, the impact it's had on the theater and society and all that. 
And how it created history. Look, as far as theatrical impact goes, it's like we said a few episodes ago, it's a chorus line. You know, two episodes ago it was Lame Is, it's a chorus line. And one more, it's a chorus line. I mean, it is, it is Broadway. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's. I, this show was a show that none of us ever thought we'd, you know, like, I don't think anyone ever was like, yeah, let's make a show about dancers. But then we did it, and it's like, yeah, why didn't we make a show about dancers? This is like the epitome of Broadway shows, you know? Uh, I don't know. I just, I when I think of a Broadway show, I can just see a chorus line. And not just because it's so successful, but just, you know... You think of that. Like, that's what New York and Broadway, like, it right. comes Right, you to think mind. about auditioning. You think about trying to get into that show that only eight people are going to get into. I mean, of course, I think of, like, Wicked or Hamilton or Les Mis or something. But, like, at the same time, I just, for some reason, that style, the dancing and everything, I immediately go to a chorus line. It This show revitalized Broadway, you know? Oh, yeah. um, to quote... Uh, another quote I'm going to give, Michael Bennett and the chorus line totally changed the musical theater. It really saved the financial fortunes of the Schubert organization. It was a catalyst for the improvement of this area, and of course this area is now the most desirable area in New York. That was Gerald Schoenfeld, who was the chairman of the Schubert organization. In 1975, at this time in the country, it was just full-on economic turmoil. We were in a huge recession, Nobody had money. Nobody was coming to New York to visit. The area was just squalor. And so, you know, in previous episodes, we talked about how, like, Disney and whatnot came in and they cleaned up the surrounding area because there was, like, all this porn and adult stuff and drugs and everything in the area. Okay, well, this is all, like, where it kind of started developing a lot because businesses were closing up shop and everything. Um, And so... These, you know, dens of vice, if you will, were I setting mean, up. I mean, what does Trekkie Monster say in Avenue Q? You know, in a in a volatile it's a market, only stable investment is porn. Yeah, so you know, for for a show like a chorus line in the middle of this whole economic downturn to come in and be so successful to give people a reason to come to the theater district to come to Broadway, that was a huge deal. You know, mm-hmm. it brought forward. And in focus, uh, and the focus to a part of the theater that many people hadn't paid much attention to before, you know? You know, of course now we all, oh, yay, the dancer. We all acknowledge them, you know? But before that, I mean... It's like, if you're not the star, eh, I don't care. There's a reason they call themselves the gypsies, you know? And I think, again, we should have another side podcast to talk about the people backstage, because I feel like a lot of people backstage, a lot of people in your field go unnoticed and unappreciated. But the thing about the backstage worker is that we are behind the scenes and if we are in the forefront, then usually that means something has gone wrong. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> what I mean is, yeah, I, mean, that's, I love that because I used to say that all the time when, uh, when, when I was working and they'd be like, you should probably be in long black sleeves. I'm like, why? Well, in case the audience sees you. Well, if the audience sees me, something has clearly gone wrong and I'm obviously needing to be seen. No, um, what I mean is, you know, I think this show gave credit where credit is due and I think more credit should be spread out among other things. There's a lot of things I feel like the audience doesn't know about that happens 
And I think this is the first show that started kind of taking the spotlight and just panning it to the right a little bit and being like, by the way, there's also all of this. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, the choreography has left a lasting impression that even today is seen in many productions. Mm-hmm. I know that the kick line, Michael Bennett and the chorus line did not come up with the kick line. No. But I feel like they, I don't know, made it like super iconic, I guess. Anytime you see a kick line in a show, you don't think about uh, Ziegfeld's Follies. You think of a chorus line. Right. Well, but uh, one of the things that I really like, too, is the fact that it's that continuous, never-ending cycle of ensemble members that just keep coming in. That's why they have the mirror come up, so it just looks like there are countless people on stage. Because I think that that's a double-edged sword where it's like, yeah, I am one. I am an individual, but also I am replaceable. Yes. And I also like the fact that, you know... With it being so iconic, other shows have spoofed it. Like we said, like I'm thinking about, and and it's so recognizable in that sense. So I'm thinking like something's rotten. The mm-hmm. fact that um, at the end of a musical, they all hold up their headshots, but they're all like those sketch like tutor drawings, mm-hmm. and everyone immediately knows what show they're making. Like they're spoofing, you know. Mm-hmm. Or in the producers when they sing "Springtime for Hitler." And the mirrors go up so you can see the swastika, yeah, and but you know that it's yeah, like... Yeah. And it brought awareness to the struggles and hardships uh, that theater artists, dancers in particular, go through to do their art. You know, and, 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 and I'm not saying just the audition process, which is grueling. I'm thinking also Paul San Marco when he when his knee. Mm-hmm. The, the, the actual, like, physical wear that this industry, this art takes on your body mm-hmm. you know um i was thinking about this while we were when i was watching the olympics you know watching these gymnasts you know there's that um gymnast from oh, oh the one who's 40 i think it's, it's uzbekistan uzbekistan that doesn't feel right but she's 40 years old competing in an olympics right and i'm like how is your body still doing yeah that? god bless because most gymnasts i feel like make it to like what 24, 25, like Simone Biles, I think she's 24 right now. No, she's super young, but she's already referring to herself as a grandma. Well, but she's old for her sport. Yeah. And I just thought, I literally immediately went to this and I went, think about a dancer. Like how many dancers do you see? You see actors that are in their 50s and 60s. Well, how many dancers do you see? Particularly in a chorus line that are middle-aged or older or something like that. Like, it really takes a toll on your body. And then I love that line. If today were the day you couldn't dance anymore, what would you do? And I think that's something that we should all examine. If we're doing something we love and today was the last day and you couldn't do it anymore, what would you do? It makes you really think like, oh no, what would I do? And I love that Diana Morales or what, and everybody just says, well, I wouldn't have any regrets. I wouldn't have any regrets at all. And I'm like, I love that, you know? Isn't that how we all want to live? Is just no regrets. No regrets. Well, and I think we should move on to societal impacts that the show's had. And we've already mentioned it. It's revitalized Broadway. And right. I, I, I dread to think what would have happened to Broadway had this show not impacted it the way that it had. Because could we have lost Broadway theaters? Well, I mean, you had shows like Chicago and whatnot that moved in, but... 
A chorus line acted as an anchor to the theater district during a stormy financial time. And as our country in New York was emerging from it, it provided a solid place for theater goers and tours to come to and experience theater at its best. And this show has hope, and I think that's what we most needed, you know. Sorry, it was a couple years too soon. Oh, you stopped that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like, if a chorus line hadn't come along, what would have happened to the theater district? What would it have looked like? I don't want to think about that. But it, it I think it helped heal... New York and, and 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 the country as a whole and bring us out of of what what was really just remind us like no through hard work anything's impossible and I, I what I want to tie that back to is what we've already mentioned which is the line this idea mm. of the line that was used in the show we're all on the line you know so many other facets in in the world sports and business and that they were all using the metaphor of the line to motivate them and what i what i love is that you know i think with a chorus line and seeing how hard these dancers were working i think it kind of showed society that like hey anything is possible if you work hard enough you know? and sometimes you could be working so hard and it still can't happen and that's very human experience. Yeah. People were correlating. We're all there. People were correlating or relating to the show and its message in regards to their situation. Again, we were in the middle of a recession. It was the middle of the Cold War. Like, it, horribleness. And yet we're sitting there going, yeah, but we're all in this together. And together, we can do good things. We can do, if we work together, we can do anything. Speaking of doing anything. Can we talk about the effect that it had on the public theater? Now, I know that's a theatrical, like, impact, but actually I feel like the public theater has more of a social impact. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, especially because of what the public has been able to do, um, what kind of works it's been able to perform, and a lot of it comes from the financial success that they got from a chorus exactly. line. Um, I mean, you know, the public brought us such great works as... Hamilton. Yep. Um, and I mean, hair. Hair. There's been so. Shakespeare in the park. Yeah, there's just yeah. so much Assassin. that the public has done for theater and the fact that it's kind of a starting point that's not, it's not necessarily, I mean, you know, money happens, but it's one of those places where it starts with the art. And so the fact that the art. Say it again. Keep it, going with your thought. It you're... starts... Well, why'd you interrupt me then on it? <laughs> it starts with the art, and then the art creates the success because of it. Not because they're, we're not trying to find a good show to take a gamble on. Yep. It's about what stories need to be told, and are we telling them how they should be told? Art like, for art's sake. Right. I mean, like, think about shows like Teenage Dick that we saw. I was just thinking about that, or the, the, the Mojada Mahada, remember Medea? the no Mahada. Oh. Remember it was it was the version of Medea, but it was about the immigrants oh. coming over the border. Yes, from Mexico. Yeah, and yeah, yes, yeah. so that one was great. I mean, you know, there's just so much that the public can do because of the financial success yeah. that the chorus line brought, because they were the ones who started it. And I mean, think about how well they turned over that investment of a mere one point six million dollars. Yeah. Exactly. And I though I can't believe it costs one point six million dollars to produce 
a oh, chorus line? I can. I know where most of that budget went. I, I mean, I it's guarantee the people. You. Oh, no. I bet it's the costumes. Do you, I mean, those gold costumes at the end? I don't think they cost that much. I bet that's a bulk of the budget, though. And developing mm-hmm. it? Well, and that's. A, I'm pretty sure it went to... Labor, you think? I think so. I be, That'd be interesting. Like, Yeah, it'd just nose be around cool to that. see that financial <laughs> breakdown. But, you know, I just think it's amazing that, um, you know, the success of good storytelling... Yeah. ...brought such more success of more stories yeah. that are told. And I think that this also really inspired a new generation of performers. Oh, it really yeah. got people excited about the theater. Um, another quote, or just story, Jerry Mitchell, who you might remember or recognize from Kinky Boots and Pretty Woman, um, he saw a chorus line at the Schubert Theater in Chicago. He was in the last row of the balcony, and right after he saw it, he went back to his dance school, and he told his teacher he needed to learn turn, turn out, and jump step, which was from the opening number. Um, and two years later, he auditioned for the show. He got in. He went on tour of the show, and when he was went on for the first time, he remembered thinking to himself, I wonder who's in the back row watching. He tells that story in Broadway, the American musical. And I love that because, you know, I want to do theater and be involved in the theater till the day I die. But I also want to make sure that there are people right behind me that want to do the same thing to keep it flourishing and keep it going. And the fact that this show, you know, we, we uh, you know, there can only be so many Lin-Manuel Miranda's and Idina Menzel's and Chris and Chenoweth's and, you know, we do need other people. We need some really strong, solid dancers. We need more... Um, well, we need the next generation taking the torch and continuing this legacy because at its heart, theater is storytelling and storytelling is the most primal sense of community we have. Absolutely. That's Be- that's perfectly put. Right? Because, I mean, like, think about it. That's how it all started was us gathering around fires to tell tales, you know, and how those things have developed and you know something that i know that we've talked about a lot is um you know the the future of theater and is theater dead you know uh, especially with the motion picture and i just can't believe it's so because there's always going to be someone in the back of the theater where it's their first show they catch the bug and they're like i can't get this from a movie because a movie can make me feel something like emotionally, but like I can't feel it in my body mm-hmm. when I can hear someone singing and I can feel you their don't get voice that communal experience. and their voice reverbing in mm-hmm. my my soul, in my body. Like I can their their literal sound waves are entering into my body and knocking themselves around in my body and I can feel those sound waves. Yeah. You know, you can't you can't experience shared emotion through a pre-recorded movie. I mean, don't get me wrong. There are lots of movies I cry at. But the fact that like... You don't have those cathartic experiences. Yeah, it's like I don't feel the same way watching someone cry in a film as I do when that person is living, breathing the same air I am. I hear there are certain like clips of songs or certain lines I hear that I'm immediately taken back that I can get emotional or I can remember exactly I can I can smell the air and certain I can't wait till we talk about the play of the normal heart because I can remember the moment I felt my gut I my gut drop my Adam's apple just clench up seeing those names on the wall at the end Mm -hmm. I'm getting goosebumps like right now 
thinking about it. Like, you know, that... And I saw the HBO film of it. I didn't get that at all. Right. Or the one that uh, that gets me and it's on the other level is we saw 1984. And oh, I no. was I, yeah. so disturbed. And I mean, listen, I've watched four of the Saw movies. And I was disturbed, but I was not disturbed the same way. Like, We'll get into that when yeah. we talk about that. It's intense. But yeah. So, back on track. Is this show relevant? Absolutely. I mean... Is it relevant? It's a Broadway staple. It always has a home on Broadway. It can come back anytime it wants to. It has a free pass. Any theater you want, take your pick. Come on in. As long as there are dancers, this show is relevant. Yep. Exactly. It will continue to draw on audiences with its thrilling movements and its stirring ballads and its hilarious songs. This story is so relatable and real. Um, It doesn't have to be modernized. No. Because it's something everyone can relate to no matter what year it is. Yeah. yeah I mean, you. I, I, I don't want to see modern costumes, but you could do it. But I like having it. I like seeing the leg warmers and everything. But sometimes things work out, but also sometimes things don't. No matter how hard we work, but we still have to go for it. You know, it, there's heartbreak sometimes. Uh, yes, there's heartbreak, but sometimes in heartbreak there is triumph. And one of the things I think about in that idea is the story of Oedipus. No, Orpheus. Orpheus, sorry. Orpheus. Wrong wrong story. The story of Orpheus, the fact that... Orpheus and Eurydice. Yeah, the fact that he almost makes it all the way, and then right at the end... He doubts. He doubts, and he turns around. And, you know, I mean, I'm just going to mention it here. The Hades sound, guys. I'm going to ruin the ending for you. Like, you get sucked into that story, and you really, like, you you and I knew that story going into it of Orpheus and Eurydice, and we both, we, I know you as well, we both totally thought, we're like, oh, great, he's going to get her out, this is going to happen. And then he turned around, and the you're just like, oh, my God, how? And yet I love that they say... You know, but we come back and we tell the story as if it'll turn out different this time. And I feel that applies to a chorus line. There's a lot of people whose dreams get crushed, but they keep going back as if it's going to come out different. Mm-hmm. We keep going to a chorus line as if these people who get cut in the end, they're not going to get cut this time. No. No, there's no way. We're all... we Such a compelling story for Sheila. She's older, but she's still here, and she's feisty, and she's good. No, this is going to be the time. And Paul's not going to snap his knee. No, no. He's going to be stronger. And no, it doesn't happen. But we keep coming back, you know. Finally, as promised, we are going to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing this show like we haven't already been doing that this whole time. (laughs) So I've seen the show only once back in 2008 at the Schoenfeld Theater. And I have never seen this show live, unfortunately. So I could go on and on, but I remember everything about the show when I saw it. I saw my friend Watson. I remember the night. I was beautiful. It was a little bit muggy, but I just... It was a perfect evening. We were in the back row of the theater. No pun intended, but it was exactly what I wanted it to be. It felt so raw and so great. The energy was great. And then after the show, I remember meeting people like 
Mario Lopez, <laughs> who's in. Um, Nick Adams. Uh, Charlotte Diambos. And this is a fun one. So I was um, looking through my playbill today. Tom Birkelin. And Mr. Birkelin, who was in the show. I dressed him at Pioneer Theater when he was in our production of Will Rogers Follies. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I met you before I met you. That's cool. <laughs> um, but prior to seeing the show, this uh, was the opening number for my junior year art drama club's Tony Awards. And I choreographed this opening number. Um, and the reason why I got to choreograph is I pitched it and I sold like, this should be our opening number. And it's because I remember seeing probably the American musical, but I remember seeing the info about this show and seeing clips from the show. And I went, Oh my gosh, this is incredible. Uh, we have to do this. And I sold it and we did it. And then I returned after graduating to do this choreograph it again. What was this? Uh-huh. This was 2008. Right before going into your senior year? Mm-hmm. Oh, this is great. No. The famed box am, of shoes. I am not a dancer. That was the hardest thing I ever did in my life, and I worked so hard to learn the dance moves so that I looked good and a show that I could take it seriously. And then Andrew, every time I'd miss a step, I'd be like, I'm going to throw shoes at you from my box of shoes from the audience if you don't get it right no so true i mean he was gonna throw it at everyone but. true story so you know a younger me and i, I would not do this again but younger me um the stage obviously was up higher than where i was sitting but i would i'd show up as we got closer to the performance now, y- michael was your assistant choreographer yes he was but I'd show up with this box of old shoes of mine. Like, you know, I, it's the cleats. a shoe got chewed up by my dog and now I had one left. I just show up with it and I'd sit in the back of the theater. And anytime someone made a royally bad mistake, I would just huck a shoe from the background. It would just hit the lip of the stage. I didn't Sounds actually. a little abusive. I never hit anyone, <laughs> to be fair. No, no, no. I thought you almost hit I Eli once. I never hit anyone ever. <laughs> I was never aiming at anyone. I always hit. If there was an orchestra in the pit, I would have hit someone in the pit. But there was never an orchestra. But I would just sit there. And on their award night, um, you know, because they weren't all like backstage. They were all mingling in the thing. I showed up. I literally sat down and had my box of shoes. I was like, hey, everybody break a leg. And I just sat down with my box of shoes. Can you really call it a famed box of shoes, though? It's famed. It's famous. It's legend. As things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see this show again. You'll be able to catch a chorus line at a theater near you, hopefully soon, for sure, hopefully 2025. We just want to mention as well that as things are opening up, we encourage all of you to support the arts, whether it be local, regional, Broadway, whatever. Go support the arts. Now, more than ever, it is time for us to raise up and foster the performing arts wherever they may exist. Please join us in doing your part to help the arts return by supporting a live performance near you. We ourselves have already begun this work and have a special announcement regarding this. In case you haven't heard, starting October 12th of this year, we're going back to Broadway and we'll be bringing you live updates from the reopening of it. 
As mentioned, we'll be releasing many episodes about the shows we will be seeing. So keep your eye on all of our socials, as well as where you subscribe for these mini episodes coming this fall. Also, we would love to hear from you out there. Send us some stories. We want to hear from you and about your experiences. Whether it was on stage, backstage, or at the stage door, we want to hear all about it. Please send us your stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. And in a couple weeks, we'll start incorporating your stories into our episodes. We want to thank all of you out there for listening. We really, really appreciate it. And we just want to close the episode out by giving a shout out to a few more listeners out there. So to our listeners out in China, hey, and in the Chicago area, we want to say a big hello and thank you so much for listening. So until next time, with my famed box of shoes... I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird running from those box of shoes. <laughs> Reminding you to turn off your cell phone. Unwrap your candies because who brings candy to a show anymore? And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Also, we have a TikTok. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by... John Bartman, Evan Schaefer, Jazzar, Music for Wildlife, and Billy Murray. <laughs>